I'm not formally trained in any in anything, actually. I mean, I have a degree in history, so that would be like the most formal training that I have. Otherwise, for both food and flowers, it's just sort of an off-the-cuff type thing. And um, I started a catering company in my basement when I was 22 in Portland. And that was, you know, 21 years ago. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, our guest is Naomi Pomeroy, the chef behind Portland, Oregon's Beast and Expatriate, and the author of Taste and Technique. Later on, I'll be asking my friend Dan Holzman a burning food question. So Anna, what did you and Naomi talk about? Naomi Pomeroy has been really very outspoken voice and writer in the past year or so on the topic, especially of abuse in restaurant kitchens. And I think in the last couple of years, we've been talking about these issues in such abstract terms. I was kind of curious to ask her about what it looks like from a really practical level, just what the nuts and bolts are of running a restaurant kitchen with a really healthy, happy work culture. And Naomi's actually starting to branch out of the restaurant business, too, a little bit. You talked to her about that? Yeah, that's right. She just opened a floral design shop in Portland. So we talked about some of the weird, kind of surprising overlap between cooking and flower arranging. Here's Anna talking to Naomi Pomeroy. Naomi Pomeroy, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. So you are coming from Portland. You opened Beast in Portland about 10 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, 11 now, I guess. But yeah. Yes. Are diners in Portland eating the same way they did 10 years ago? What's changing? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, not at all, actually. Um, it seems like, I mean, people still come to Beast, which is awesome. Um, but it's kind of a special occasion type situation. Um, and I think people are just like everywhere. It's the same where everybody's eating more fast casual and kind of healthier and um, faster. Everyone's like rushing a lot. That's too bad. They should take their time. I know. I totally agree. Um, I think it's been interesting. I think um, I have a cocktail bar across the street that just got written up as one of the best places to eat in Portland, which is great. It's funny because it's just a cocktail bar. Um, so I think that that's just emblematic of how people are dining these days, for sure. Are we talking about expatriate? Yeah. yeah. I went to expatriate for the first time a few years ago. And the most memorable thing was a raw onion sandwich. Oh, yeah. The James Beard butter and onion sandwich. That's kind of a classic from yeah. him. And he was a Portlander, so I like to give a little kind of nod over to Portland culture. Has that always been on the menu at Expatriate? Yep, since day one. Did <laughs> you like it? Yeah, I did. I loved it. Is your version any different from James Beard's? Yeah, yeah. His his version, and I know this because I was actually in a movie about James Beard's life. Wow, like a dramatized no, movie not really. or interviewed in like a documentary? A, it was more like a documentary. It was on okay. PBS. My, my, my sandwich is a little different. His had mayonnaise on it. Um, mine is just butter. It's actually brushed with room temperature butter on one side and then slices of cold butter on the other side as you're building the sandwich. Ooh. And then slices of really, really thin raw onion and some crunchy gray salt and chopped up parsley. What does the like? What do the two temperatures of butter do for the sandwich? What's well, the, uh... yeah, I mean the butter. So like the idea with the soft butter is that it gives you this like nice 
coating to stick the sandwich together because if it was just two pieces of cold butter, you know, everything would kind of fall apart. And so it gives you this like kind of the glue, I guess you say. And then um, the butter that we slice, actually, we slice very, very thin off of like a perfect square of butter so that it fits the sandwich perfectly. And then I actually... I mean, maybe this sounds gross to listeners, but I don't think it does. Um, I actually like, with a clean hand, um, just warm the butter ever so slightly to sort of like, just like, just like rest it there for just a second and then put the whole sandwich together. So it's not like ice cold, but it has like this and it looks beautiful because it has, it shows us this very thin slice. Wow. Is it hard to sell people on the idea of raw onions? No. People go crazy for that sandwich. And also, like, it's been written up a bunch of times. Like, Esquire wrote it up, and, yeah, people are always tweeting about it and stuff like that. So I think it's, like, it's actually one of the most popular items on the menu over there. I love it. What else is changing in the Portland restaurant scene right now? What are you seeing a lot of? Restaurants. I'm seeing a lot of restaurants. We have, like, probably, like... I mean, Portland is a population of like sub 700,000 people. And yet I feel like we have restaurants like New York and they go in like in numbers like New York. It's like crazy. Um, I think we had like 100 restaurant openings like last spring or something. Oh, my goodness. It's really crazy. It's a culture of going out, though. People, Portlanders like to eat out, right? It's true. Yeah, they totally do. And I think it's... um, I think it's changing, like, the the demographics of Portland are changing really dramatically, too. So there's, like, a lot of new people there that are always interested in trying, like, the latest greatest. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to, I don't know, like, maintain this relevancy. And it's an int- interesting conversation. I'm actually, like, um, just added Tuesday nights to my repertoire. Oh, um, to both restaurants. No, just... Um, expatriates open seven nights a week but for beast you know we do a sec- set six course menu tasting menu it's like at six or at eight thirty, and and that's like how we've always done it and actually we're totally mixing things up so tuesday nights we're going to start doing a short like four course menu um, and you can come whenever you want and Sort of like just you can even eat vegetarian if you want to. Oh so we're just so trying for to, all the fast people, the people who want to eat really fast, fast. People, yeah. I just decided like I would give it a shot and see how it goes. It actually might be something we end up doing on weekdays in general because right, I'm finding it so hard for people to get through the traffic of Portland um, to get all the way over um, to Beast from downtown, which I used to say took 15 minutes. I used to say it takes anywhere. Anywhere you want to go in Portland, 15 to 20 minutes tops. And now it's like, God, in rush hour, it can be an hour. So it's just things have changed just like everywhere. So it's like just adapting and realizing that I ask people, you know, like, how how come you don't come to Beast more often? Like, I have great customers that come, you know, once every two months or once a month. But I don't have great customers that come every week because it's a set six-course menu. And they always said that it's just – it's not the amount of food. It's like – it's just that it takes too long. Like nobody has three hours to dine on a Wednesday at 8.30. It's so, true. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel any pressure to open a new restaurant anytime soon? Big time. Yeah. Actually, I do feel the pressure. Um, not just the pressure, but the desire. I find that like creativity goes for me in about a five-year wave of like, you know, I think that's actually how long it takes to do a book in some ways. I mean, not really five, but it's like when you think of the idea and then you, you you know, write the proposal and then you pitch it and sell it and, you know, write it. And then it you know, it's like it does. It's a pretty long process, like three or four years. So I feel like creatively speaking, I opened Expatriate when Beast was five years old old and I feel like now that expat is five 
I'm like, what else am I going to do? Like, I feel this burn to do something. But then I'm like, ah, the Portland market feels really saturated. And I've always been a person that I'm not trying to, like, fit my concept. Like, I'm not I'm not going out to try to find a space for a specific concept. Creatively, I work really differently than that. I, like, look for a space and then figure out what the concept feels like it needs to be. I guess I'm kind of like I'm a person that waits for opportunity in a different way. And so I'm waiting for the right the right thing to come down the path um, restaurant wise. I have some ideas, but for now, I actually am biding my time by opening a flower shop instead. So, yeah, that's right. That (laughs) opened a few months ago. Yeah, like six months ago. And it's um, it's called Calibri. And it's actually pretty close to my restaurants. It's um, really small beautiful storefront with lots of plants it's like a it's like a wild tropical jungle in there and we have events and things we teach workshops on centerpieces and wreath making and all this stuff and we do a lot of specialty we we do a lot of weekly accounts so we actually do other restaurants in town as well as a few clothing stores and things like that so I have always had a passion for flowers and plants Um, in 2009 when I got best new chef from Kate Crater at Food and Wine, she goes, what would you be if you weren't a chef? And I said, a botanist or a florist. And so... There's a lot of overlap, too, between those two things. It's so cool. The overlap is so cool. There's seasonality to it. Yeah, things have a smell. Like, you know, you you could make a beautiful spread of food. I've been thinking recently, maybe it's like you know, a potential idea, but, but I've been thinking about this like beautiful spread that would have like a lacquered duck with like a kumquat sauce and then like a beautiful like centerpiece floral arrangement that had like kumquats and sage and all the flavors. Like there's, there's like actual literal crossover or can be. And it's also just, you know, in a three dimensional way, it's a lot like putting a plate together. I mean, we do eat with our eyes, first and I think color and texture and like the a nod toward seasonality is always so important when you like when a plate is put in front of you that I, I feel the same way about a flower arrangement. Edible arrangements was onto something, <laughs> right? I don't know. Their stuff is pretty ugly. <laughs> and I don't even know if it tastes good. The fruit looks really um, out of season. That's true. <laughs> Maybe you can make a good version of edible right? arrangements someday. Maybe that's the next frontier. With candied kumquats. And did I see a picture of Martha Stewart at your flower shop the other day? You sure did, <laughs> except that actually that was part of my big week-long journey to New York. So she oh. wasn't at the flower shop that would be so cool no um I, it was it was me at uh, martha's uh, offices and i was doing an arrangement with her for you know just to talk about i was actually doing it in the kitchen department in in the, in the culinary side um and so that was fun and funny because everyone sort of gathered around asking me lots of questions about you know what it's like to be a chef and a floral designer and you know i mean it's cool like i like we were just saying it's it's actually quite similar I mean, right down to everything except for eating the arrangement. But I was flattered that she liked it. Have you met? Had you met Martha before? I have, um, though. Being the famous star that she is, I don't think she remembered meeting me because she was like, "Oh, it was nice to meet you." Which, I mean, I have a soft spot for that. I hardly ever remember meeting people because it's like there's just so many people that come in and out of the restaurant. So I never mind reintroducing myself to people. But yeah, I think I met her at like um, food and wine festival in Miami. But you know. 
like a solid 10 years ago. So it's been a while. Another person who's famous both for her flowers and her food. It's true. And another person who started out as a caterer, kind of like a lowly caterer. I mean, not lowly, but just, you know, kind of simple compared to what she ended up being. Right. And that's how you started out your career, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's something that I, I, you know, I'm not I'm not formally trained in any in anything, actually. I mean, I have a degree in history, so that would be like the most formal training that I have. Um, otherwise, for both food and flowers, it's just sort of an off the cuff type thing. And um, I started a catering company in my basement when I was 22 in Portland. And wow. that was, you know, 21 years ago. So, you know, there's a lot has changed and the underground dining scene isn't even an underground dining scene anymore. I mean, I think it is, but it's like now official and it's called a pop-up and, you know, people have taken it above above the underground and, you know, it's uh, occupying a different part of our culture now. It's much more widely accepted. But yeah, I started an underground supper club. That's what we called it in 2000. So it's been a hot minute. Do you think it's getting harder for chefs to start out that way, like kind of with informal training? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's getting harder for chefs. You know, I, I mean, I think that we're all talking about it. Um, this like zero percent unemployment that we're talking about is a surprise to all of us who can't seem to find skilled kitchen labor. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, that's a that's a different podcast. That's a big conversation. Um but, yeah, I think it's harder. I think um, it's harder to go in sort of with this, like, tiny concept and just hope that people like it. I guess food carts are a little bit like that, you know, food carts. And, I mean, I think food carts might be kind of – I don't know if they're over. I don't – I never go to them, so I'm not a good barometer of the success of food carts. And some they cities had a moment, though, a few years ago, and it seems to be on its way out a little <clears throat> It seems like a lot of those people are sort of using it as a launch pad, much like sort of the pop-up. Mm-hmm. It's like they're going in like a few year cycles, right? There was like the underground dinner thing in the early 2000s, and then it was like food trucks, and now it's pop-ups. And, you know, it's like it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to see what people use as their launch pad. Um, I feel like now what's happening with some of the chefs that maybe aren't as well known is that smart chefs like John and Vinny in Los Angeles are kind of uh, snapping people up and saying like you're you're doing great work we like your style like we're gonna open a place with you I think that might be sort of the more of the future of some of the mentoring people being the people who are funding and backing um, future restaurateurs because I don't think you can I mean I opened Beast for sixty thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. And that's unheard of now. Right? I, I mean, there's I, I couldn't even open it for less than like 250 now. And it would probably be more than that. So it's just it's, it, you know, whether it's inflation or what it is. I mean, I think it's also the willingness to. Um, well, for me, because I was younger, it was like the willingness to be so shoestring that it was just me and my sous chef. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any servers or a dishwasher or prep cook. And it was like we did. We did everything, and then it's it, over time we built it up, and you know it, it built very or, organically. But yeah, I think nowadays people would come in and just be like, "What is this crap?" You know, like they don't have the right dishware, or you know, where their wine list is. You know, you have to bring your own wine. Like you know, I, I don't think people diners are are much more uh, elevated now than they were in two thousand seven. 
How much does it cost to open a restaurant in Portland now, do you think? Like, I mean, if you're starting out opening a brick and mortar? Um, I don't know. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I opened Expat expatriate for 150 which was also really crazy and that was like you know five years ago um super low budget um but yeah i don't know i i i think it depends on the kind of restaurant i mean you there's restaurants that are opening for a couple million three million dollars you know because they have really really fancy like marble bathrooms and you know beautiful hand towels and you know like incredible banquettes and all that i mean everything every fixture in a restaurant costs so much money um i've always been in the past anyway more of a i I like i like being my only I like not having business partners. I mean, in the past, I would say that. I think nowadays I'm kind of like, to be honest, on on the lookout sort of for somebody that would want a partner and go into a project together because uh, the size of project that I'd want to run, I wouldn't be doing the scheduling and the back of the house stuff and the front of the house stuff. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like there's uh, an opportunity for some great partnerships that that can come forward. And so that like people don't have to bear the weight of $2 million of debt on their own, which sounds really frightening. It does. Yeah. You wrote a piece about the industry for Eater this summer that was about kind of the boys club culture of restaurant kitchens and kind of about rethinking how kitchen staffs relate to each other and have fun together. Yeah. Has that kind of taken shape in your own businesses? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been working on this for a while. Um, you know, I think I realized that after I like I would say I I stepped aside a little bit in my duties when I went to write the book. I really wanted to write an excellent book. It's called Taste and Technique and it is excellent. It is. Um and I and so I knew that I couldn't really perform my duties as a full-time, you know, every working every night on the line. I, I wasn't that person that could go home at 3 o'clock in the morning and start writing like some people I know. Mm-hmm. So crazy. Um, and so when I took space from the restaurant, it was like I really needed to give the power to the people that were there and, you know, give them um, some creative control and more autonomy and a voice. Um and that process was really painful for me. Like, it was really guilt-ridden. Like, I can't believe that they're working and I'm not working, even though I was at home doing, like, recipe testing and writing and on the phone with my author. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I I had to let go of a lot of stuff. But in doing that, the process of, of giving people a little bit more autonomy, I noticed it was showing up like they were so much happier, you know, and that – the food was better because if I'm asking, you know, Jake Stevens or Lucian Prowitz to come up with these menus, they they are so much more invested in making the food amazing. And actually, it's like they can just understand it because everyone cooks a little differently. And when a chef says, hey, this is my way, my way or the highway, you know, here's the recipe, do it. It, it doesn't feel the same as it does when people are truly doing stuff that they identify with. And so what I kind of, I turned myself into more of an editor. Um, I said, you guys are doing incredible work. I mean, I'll be honest, like, I think that, you know, these guys are like trained and they've worked in way more restaurants than I have. And, you know, and just to be frank, like, I think my strength 
um, isn't in just working the line every night. My strength is in like knitting the whole idea together and and actually like going back to what you asked is creating community and making sure that people really love coming to work. I mean, that's kind of like if I said to myself a long time ago, like if people aren't having fun here, just shut the shit down. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm not interested in having a thing where people have to you know how people live for the weekend and they're like, oh, I don't work today and all that. And it's just like, you know, chefs and restaurateurs, they, they spend too much time at work to f- feel like that. Like if you're yeah. if you're going 80 hours a week, like living, working for the weekend like that, that something's wrong with that equation. And so, you know, in particular for women um, and minorities and just, yeah, the underserved populations of, of kitchens in particular, I feel like um, – it's important to give a voice and give space and a place that people feel comfortable and welcomed. And I wrote that piece for Eater because I realized, and I am still realizing and still talking to all my friends in the industry about this constantly, which is that we just, um, we have to rewrite how it's done. It hasn't, it, you know, we don't have, it's like if it's like kids who, who grew up like with abusive parents or something you know it's like if you want to undo that stuff like you have to put the work in and you have to go to therapy and you have to realize like how and why you don't want to like perpetrate those those crimes to your own family and to go forward is going to absolutely require that of the entire industry really front and back of the house and the way that diners interact with you know people working in restaurants and just like the whole culture of what it means to be in the service industry. And traditionally, like the boys club culture was a lot of kind of blowing off steam at the end of the night by drinking a ton, <laughs> doing drugs probably. Yeah, totally. Ha- has it made you rethink the way you kind of like have fun with your staff or ways that you kind of bond as a team? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, I would say that in a lot of ways, I think the whole industry is, and in, and Portland in particular, has become sort of a hub for people who are trying to have lives outside of the restaurant industry, whether that's because they're, you know, running ultra marathons or having a family of three kids or, you know, there's a lot of prominent Portland chefs who have interests outside of restaurants. And, and so, you know, for us, what we decided to do was I think rather than going out and partying with our staff, which we really don't do anymore. Um, I mean, look, some of the some of the cooks, I'm sure they go out after work. It's just that I'm not also there. Right. It makes a difference. <laughs> it really does, because there's a there's an inherent power dynamic there that's not appropriate. Um, but, you know, it's taken us a long time to to learn that um, the time that we spend together is actually taking care of each other at the restaurant. So we we switched um, a few years ago to cooking. We, we used to just I don't know, starve ourselves or, you know, and like eat really badly after work or, um, you know, sometimes we'd get like something delivered if if it was a long, busy day. And um, now we we pretty much share the responsibility of cooking food. Like one one person cooks a meal. And actually, sometimes I cook at home for the staff. If it's like a busy day at the restaurant, I'll cook at home the night before and I'll bring food in and we we sit together and we have we actually sit every day and have a full lunch. And and that's like better for us to be able to bond and spend time together mm-hmm. than it is to go out and get blitzed after work, you know. I was going to ask also on the business side, is it hard to sustain a business 
with a really healthy, happy work culture, does that put any strain on the finances? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, Jesus, finances are always strained in a restaurant. Um, yeah. But I think um, I was actually thinking you were going to ask slightly something slightly different that I want to say. What I thought was you were going to say, do people sometimes reject this healthy living style? In, oh, that in, too. In, you know, in, yeah. for like, you know, something a little more gruff. And I would say absolutely. Like Beast isn't a place like for everybody. Um, and when we interview, we interview as much for cooking as for how people are going to be in community with each other in the space Uh, it's like personality based more than Mm -hmm. almost the cooking skills I can teach that to anyone Um, but I have had people say like you know and this was your this was years ago and I haven't heard this in a while but I did have someone say you know I just I need to get a job that's more serious where the chef is more mean you know more like you know hardcore more yelling because it's seen as like something that will help them grow. And yeah, I'm learning so cook. much because I'm like being held to the standard, these impossible standards, and I'm being, you know, I mean, just berated or abused. And I think that that's something that people they do come up with it, and they and it, I mean, it's interesting. It's like right now I have a new chef de cuisine starting, and he actually um, is from New York. Most of his training, and it's it's still a world that the ancient. Like I mean, it's a. I mean, it's not totally an East Coast West Coast thing because there are a lot of people here are trying to clean their stuff up right now, for sure. Mm-hmm. Some really good friends of mine in particular. Um, but I feel like, uh, you know, where I live, um, I kind of had to tell him, like, "Hey, man, it's not like New York here. Like you, you know, we use we use the term we here a lot in the kitchen. You know, like not so much of like a." you know the hey guys this is how i'm going to tell you how to do this but like this is how we're going to do this together kind of those sorts of like just subtle nuance of language that i find to be really an important part of um people's comfort but um is it more expensive like absolutely like probably yeah it's i mean having a yeah, we have good hr yeah, yeah we have having now. good benefits <laughs> it costs money it's so much more money and actually we're still trying to do this and i don't know how long it's going to last or if it's going to last but we're still a gratuity free restaurant um which i know is like sort of you know championed by danny meyer and um it was attempted by other restaurants in Portland that decided to pull back from it and not do that. Um, I'm 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 a year and a half in and I'm still going strong with it. I pay my servers um, high hourly, and everyone in the restaurant has health care if they work more than thirty hours a week. So I'm super proud of that. And I don't I don't want to make more money and go back to having people not have health care. You know what I mean? Like I I'd rather figure out like what's next in my career path so that I can take less money from the restaurant. Um, and, you know, diversify my interests in order to, like, create something that's really sustainable over a long period of time. Absolutely. One last question. Your last book, Taste and Technique, came out about two years ago. Is that yeah. right? What is your next book going to be about? What do you oh want to write God. about next? I don't know. I was just meeting with my agent. We had some nice oysters this this week over at Grand Central Oyster Bar. And we're hanging out and talking about that. And, you know, I don't know. I I like I know that everything is going to this sort of faster, easier, simpler, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a lot of ideas about that, but I don't know. I don't know how to I don't know how to distinguish it. Like, it's really important for me that it not be 
kind of run into all the other publications that are out there. You know, like, what else could I could I make that would be unique twist? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I think you should do fancy edible arrangements. <laughs> I think that's the move. Awesome. I'll look into it. Thank you so much for joining us, Naomi. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. Here's Matt with a burning food question for Chef Dan Holtzman. Dan Holtzman. Columnist of 100 questions for my friend the chef. You are my friend the chef. I have a question for you. I'm excited to answer it. Or try. Is it worth making your own hummus at home? Not only is it worth making your own hummus at home, it's fun for the whole family, it's healthy and delicious, and it's very inexpensive. Here's the deal. If you happen to, like me, live in New York City, there are amazing hummus, uh, like hummus-only restaurants and stores that you can get delicious hummus all over the place. It's a trend in the world to have delicious hummus available at restaurants. So you don't need to. But for most of the world, if you, if you want great hummus, you have to make it at home because the stuff you find in supermarkets has preservatives and other kind of like, you know, less than you get the. Let's talk about Sabra. I agree. Like, Sabra is less than ideal. I think it's its own food group. It's not even hummus. It's just the shit you get at, like, the airport and you're starving and it has those little discs of, of these pretzel discs. The problem is that it is delicious. There's no one, you know, it, Great. it's, it's Great. delicious. It's healthy. There's no reason not to eat it. But, like, it doesn't necessarily resemble the hummus that I imagine from the, from the fatherland or motherland. And the motherland or fatherland... It can be anywhere. It could be anywhere. There's no origin. We're not going to go there. because There is an origin. It's wherever chickpeas were grown and sesame seeds, which is like, you know, where all of humanity started. But let's let's find out. Tell me, what's the key to making hummus at home? Like, what are the ingredients that you're making? How do you make it? Okay. So hummus is like 70% chickpeas. You can use canned chickpeas. However, um, I, I think that. It's way less expensive. It's easy, and you get better results using your own, you know, chickpeas. The only caveat is that you have to soak them overnight. Soak them with a little bit of baking soda, which helps to uh, uh, lower the pH, which helps them to become more tender and soft. It also helps helps to loosen the skins because you want to skim off some of the skins. Actually, like crazy diehard hummus aficionados will will peel their skins off. That's not necessary, but you can do it. Thirty percent is. Trina. What do you call that? <laughs> Tahini! Tahini is like, it's this stuff that everybody just discovered for the first time because for the first time, good quality tahini has been available in the United States. Tahini is like, it's 100% sesame seeds that have been roasted and then ground. Um, and it ranges from absolutely terrible in quality, which is what's mostly available. It's like the hippie stuff you get at the health food store. It just, it you know, the problem is that the sesame seeds, they have to be good quality to begin with, and then they're roasted so they can be burnt. And then, you know, if you buy terrible old sesame seeds and then roast them and burn them and then leave them sitting around, they get, they taste gross. Great tahini, however, is like intensely savory, slightly sweet, sometimes a little bit salty, and almost has that like puckering MSG like quality that that like gets your taste buds buzzing and and enhances the flavor of almost anything else you put it on there are great quality tahinis available on the internet let's talk about sum tahini based uh, in philadelphia that's the, i mean i bought a, a bottle recently for like 12 so bucks good. it's 12 dollars it's not that much listen sum tahini it's these three ladies there's no reason not to buy sum tahini that's let's just start there right if you want 
the best and and you want something that is like supporting a good cause and it is delicious and it's made with the greatest ingredient like there's zero you could throw anything at it and no one's going to get angry at you for using Soom. This podcast sponsored by Soom Tahini. Soon to be sponsored by Soom. Just kidding. It's not a sponsorship. Legitimate. Go buy some Soom Tahini. Dan Holzman, thank you so much, man. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.